You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Uh, we're continuing this morning in our series through 2 Timothy, looking at uh, foundations of the church, foundations of faith. We're in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 20 through 26 this week. Our topic today is correcting with gentleness. Um, and I want to ask this big question, you know, well, first let's read the Bible. That's probably a good place to start. You know, then we'll ask questions. All right, 2 Timothy 2, uh, 20 through 26. It's in this longer section we've been working through and we'll continue in where he's dealing with false teachers in Timothy's church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul writing to the young pastor Timothy. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what's dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You, you know that they breed quarrels. And as the Lord's, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so I want to ask this question. This passage gets at it a little bit, and I think it has some stuff to tell us about. What do we do with sin and controversy in the church? Uh, obviously, many forms of that. But what do we do with sin and controversy in the, in the church? How do we engage this? Um, and we already read Psalm 51. I want to kind of go, before we dig into this passage, I think maybe one of the most exciting places we see this is in the life of David, you know, this great king in ancient Israel, uh, a man after God's own heart, and yet a man still, nonetheless, a man with sin. Um, if you remember David's story, uh, he sinned dramatically with, uh, with this woman Bathsheba, another man's wife. He had a child with Bathsheba. And in order to cover this up, he had her husband Uriah killed. And Israel faced this awful problem. What do we do? What do we do with the fact that our king is an adulterer, that our king is a murderer, and that they knew about it? Like, what, what do they do next? Like, does someone, do they like have a coup? Like, do they take over the kingship? Like, does the priest going to go talk to him? Like, is they're all going to like go try to organize an election? Like, what are they going to do? And uh, God speaks, God works. In 2 Samuel 12, uh, he works through his prophet Nathan. Um, as James already talked about earlier, you know, his friend, this prophet Nathan comes to David and David's been hiding his sin. The people know, but I don't know that David knows that they know. That makes sense. David's been hiding his sin, uh, living like most of us do, uh, in shame, hiding what's where we've messed up. And Nathan comes to him, and Nathan does what our topic today is. He corrects, 
but he does it with gentleness. He corrects with gentleness. You know, Nathan comes to him and he, he poses to David this kind of false, like legal, this legal hypothetical. He says, imagine with me, David, and maybe David thinks it's a real story. I don't know. He says, you know, imagine with me that there's two, two men in a town and there's one man, very, very rich. He has tons of flocks, tons of sheep, big time rancher. And then there's this other family, this other guy, and he has one sheep one little uh, sheep, and they treat this sheep like some of you treat your dogs, you know, that he sleeps with the sheep, he brings it in, he feeds it food off of the table, it's not eating dog food, only organic, whole grown, and, and the sheep eats all the stuff, and the kids are friends with it, and they run around with the sheep, and this family loves this sheep like one of his own children, it says this sheep is like the man's daughter, and then a guest comes to town, and in this culture, it's common when a guest comes that someone would host them and they would prepare a big meal. And so the, the rich man hosts this guest, and what does the rich man do? If you remember the story, the rich man doesn't take one of his many, 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 many sheep. He takes the family pet lamb from the poor man, and he kills it, and they eat it for dinner. It's awful. It's a horrible story. Um, and David, Nathan says, so like, what do you think we should do? What? What should we do, David? And David says, you know, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he's, he's not going to die, but he should re restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. David speaks harshly in judgment against this man. And you can imagine Nathan's response, this prophet, maybe David's friend. He knows the message he has to carry. He hears him, he sees David's own anger at this injustice and he looks at David and he says you you are the man you're the man the guy in the story David that's you it's a gentle but it is a firm correction this is um the, you know he, he goes on to tell him that that God chose you David he, he made you king he put you over the whole nation he gave you a wife he gave you actually multiple wives as confusing as that is um and and you had all this stuff and then you took another man's wife and you not only took her but you lied about it and you hid it and then you had him killed and he says you David you are the man Nathan um Nathan addresses this and he does this, you know, he, he, he does a couple things. We're going to see these as points today. He addresses sin head on. He doesn't just leave it. He says there actually needs to be some correction here. He does speak to what David has done wrong, which has got to be terrifying. He's speaking to a king who could have him killed. He doesn't, uh, he, he ignores the controversy. He ignores all of the, the kind of silly gossip. I'm sure there had been, you know, rumors flying like, well, did Bathsheba go along with it? Like, was she complicit in this? You know, why was she bathing on the roof? That seems like maybe she was asking for a problem. I don't know. Did David really have Uriah killed? Or was that just like a thing that happened in battle? Like, there would have been all these rumors flying around. You know, maybe Davis, David after bringing in this pregnant widow, is just being generous and just being, being uh, kind to Bathsheba. There would have been plenty of rumors. Nathan ignores all of that, and he gets right to the heart of the issue. So he ignores controversy and actually speaks to the heart matter. And then he, he is, in this whole story, he's moving towards repentance. He's moving towards actual restoration. His correction is done in a way that, that shows his actual hope for repentance. We know this because if he didn't hope for repentance, he wouldn't have gone. He would have been, if David didn't repent, then he just would have had Nathan killed. Um, so, so Nathan hopes 
for repentance. And as we read earlier, Psalm 51 shows us some of the words of King David where he did repent. He did turn. He didn't just say, I'm sorry. His heart broke and he turned and he faced the Lord. Um, he, he says in 2 Samuel to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says back, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. It's a wonderful picture of repentance, of grace. And yet, if you remember the rest of the story, there are dramatic, costly, and painful consequences that David has to pay in the coming days and then in the coming years. This, I think, is a helpful story as we approach this tricky passage in 2 Timothy. Um, This is a picture of repentance. It's a picture of confrontation. It's a picture of gentleness. And that's what Paul is getting at here in this passage in 2 Timothy. Um, You know, we talked about last week, and Paul, uh, Timothy, in his church in Ephesus, was facing some really severe false teaching. He was facing some, some teachers who had come in. These weren't just people in a Bible study. These were people trying to preach. And they were teaching this heresy that the resurrection had already happened, and that there might not be a bodily resurrection for us coming after that. And he is talking about how we deal with that, but he's also telling us some really important things about how we deal with each other um, in light of this kind of thing. Um, we, we can, this is like all the New Testament, there's an actual situation here, and then we can figure out, maybe on a personal level sometimes, how much of this applies to me and my current situation, us right now as a church, me here in Marana today. So that's the, the context, and I think there is a lot here for us. How do we deal with controversy? How do we address sin in our own lives? How do we ignore silly fights and quarrels as they come up? I've got three points for you today. The first one is to separate from sin. Separate from sin. Let's look at these first couple verses. Verse 20. Um, In in these first couple verses, he's telling us to get away from sin. If you've got your Bible open, you'll notice right before this in verse 19, he just told us that this foundation of the church um, has a stamp, a seal on it. And the part of that stamp says, let the people who follow God, who name God, depart from iniquity. Let them separate from sin. And so now in verse 20, he's going to tell us, he's going to give us an illustration, maybe a confusing one, but one that would have been since I think at the time, uh, for how we might separate from sin. He says, you know, imagine that the church, verse 20, imagine the church is a big house. And in this house, there's like your own house. You know, you got some forks that are made out of special like gold, silver plated things for Thanksgiving. You got some that are, live in the drawer you use every day. And then you got some plastic ones for life group. Um, <laughs> you've got all kind of different stuff. You got cups, you know, you go all the way from Dixie cups to China. Like you've got vessels for all kind of different things, a lot of different materials. They live in an honor shame culture. And so they would have uh, not at all like question the idea that some of these vessels are inherently shameful and some of them are more honored. We might still do this in a little bit, you know, with like a china cabinet and having like, oh, these are special dishes. Like these are Christmas plates. These are Thanksgiving things. You know, this one, my grandmother gave me this this bowl or something. Um, And he says, you know, imagine all these different vessels in your house. Some of them are honored and some of them are just, you know, paper plates. Which one do you want to be? That's, that's his question. He says uh, in verse 21, uh, let if, you know, which one are you going to be? Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what's dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use. 
set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. He says, you know, if we are dishonorable, we're just going to be like a Dixie cup. Uh, you can fill it up with anything you want like you, you, and throw it away. It is a one-time use object, typically. In college, I had some that we washed in the dishwasher. Don't do that. <laughs> they, they warp. Um, but he says, you know, there's, there's vessels for honorable and for dishonorable use. And uh, what you are, how you act, is going to determine whether or not you are in the church, one of honor or dishonor. And he uses some interesting words here. In uh, verse 21, he says this word, set apart as holy. It's the same word as sanctification that it comes from. To be set apart as holy. To be used for something special. This is why this picture of dishes, that's why Paul talks about it. It's because there's special dishes, you know, we have for special times of the year. And he says, this is how, we're out, how we ought to live. We've got to cleanse ourselves. We've got to run away from sin because you've been called to be a Christmas plate. Uh, you've been called to be set apart for something special. And like, man, my mom would kill me if I washed my shoes in her kitchen sink. That sink is not for shoes. That sink is for dishes. The Christmas plates are for Christmas meals. You do not like put an earthworm and science experiment on them. He says you are set apart for something special. As the church, you've been called to something holy. God's spirit dwells in you. How dare you put your feet in my sink? You know, like you've been set apart for something special. God's spirit dwells in you. We have to separate from sin if we're going to have God's Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We have to move away from it. We can't dabble in sin and say, oh, a little bit here and there, you know. No, he says we have been called to cleanse ourselves from sin. We have to separate from it because you are a vessel called for a holy use. And then he tells us, well, let's pause there. Uh, looking at my notes, I'm actually following them for once. Uh, he said, you know, you've been set apart, you've been cleansed from sin. In the Old Testament, to be cleansed from sin, there's, a, there's one obvious way. This happens. You see it in Psalm 51. We see it in the whole Testament. There's blood shed for you. Someone or something else's life is given because the wages of sin, the penalty for sin, death. And so how does God show his people that they're cleansed in the Old Testament, right? They kill animals. They pour out blood life for life. And um, this is the grace that David experienced, where he says, God sees your sin and he extends you grace. You're not going to die, even though you took another man's life. Um, in the New Testament, and, and in reality, even for the old, we know that actually all sin is never actually covered by the blood of goats and bulls. It's covered by the blood of Jesus. That our sins, uh, there's still a, a lifeblood, a payment, life for life, that must be paid. That uh, when we transgress, when we cross those holy sacred lines, when we put our feet in the sink, uh, when we use ourselves as vessels for dishonorable things, um, there's a penalty, right? And, and we see that penalty as we're moving towards Easter. We see that penalty um, in, in Jesus, uh, his blood shed for us on the cross. And, and yet we're cleansed by that. He says, you know, cleanse yourself like these dishes. Cleanse yourself, set yourself apart after you, you know, get some raw chicken in that sink, get some bleach or Lysol or whatever you use to clean it, cleanse yourself, make it clean again, make yourself clean again, Christian. And how does this happen? Through the blood of Jesus. Uh, we can try all day, 
but only the blood of Christ uh, pays for our sin. And so he says, cleanse yourself, set yourself apart for a holy use. And then he gives us some helpful ways to do that in verse 22. In verse 22, he says, flee youthful passions. Um, We could dig into that a lot. There's a lot of youthful passions. Flee youthful passions and set apart yourself. And then he tells us four things to pursue. So flee passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And then he says, do this alongside, uh, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He says, flee, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And you're going to have to do this with other people. So we're going to do this in the context of community. We're going to do this in the context of the church. Let's think about those things he calls us to pursue. You know, when we, uh, he, I'm, I'm glad that he gives us something to pursue. When we, you know, if, you're, if you ever started a diet, it's not about just not eating things. It's about eating the right things. He says it's not about just departing from sin. We actually have to pursue something positive here. Pursue righteousness. That's a churchy word. It means rightness with God. That's an easy way to think about that. Uh, being without sin, that debt of sin has been paid off. Pursue righteousness. Pursue faith. You know, faith, belief in the Lord. Uh, trusting in him, something that we can wrestle with, we can have a hard time with, and yet it's not that hard to run towards faith. Pursue faith. Pursue love. You know, in scripture, he's not talking about romantic love. He's not saying go get a girlfriend here. He's saying like, pursue love in that you sacrifice for someone else. You know, that's the picture of love, agape, that we have in scripture over and over again is love that is sacrificial above all else. Love that does not expect something back uh, when you give something up. Uh, Love that does not put itself first. It says pursue that kind of love and pursue peace. He's not a beauty queen, but he does want peace. Does want world peace. Uh, Peace in the Bible is more than just the absence of conflict. It is that. It is that. Peace is not, it's, it's the absence of conflict, but it is also a picture of full human flourishing. Um, maybe the hippies had this a little bit right, you know, saying peace. It's not about like just a lack of war. It's like you can picture like fields and grass and like people, you know, flourishing and frolicking. I don't know. Uh, whatever your picture of human flourishing is, uh, the, this is the Hebrew greeting. You know, this is how you say hello to people in Hebrew. You still do it today. Uh, shalom. Peace And that word shalom is not just a lack of war. It's a, a picture of full prosperity, of you doing what you were made to do, of those desires you always had that have never been fulfilled, finally being fully fulfilled. That is shalom. And so we're to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And then... I love that he puts this in there at the end of verse 22. He says, do this along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Do this with other Christians. This is going to be impossible to do on your own. And it's impossible for me even to tell you how to do it on your own. Like, you have to, can only live this out in community. And this is a reminder for Timothy. It's a reminder for his church. It's a reminder for us today. Right? We try to live this out uh, in our life groups. We try to live this out. Um, we, we spend a lot of time together, hopefully, as a church. We try to live this out um, in friendships. We live this out in meals together. And, uh, you know, this is uh, just right at the heart of what we're to do as Christians, is to separate from sin, 
flee from sin, and then pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And we do this in community. You know, how do we do this uh, in community? We, we could also, some other thoughts, you know, we, we need to, when we're thinking about running away from our sin in particular, because some, sometimes we might want to go to only that part of the passage and not the get away from your sin part. How do we get away from our sin? We might need to address our sin patterns. We're going to need to actually look our sin in the face, understand what our areas of weakness are, what are my areas of temptation. We're going to make sure we're going to, need to make sure we don't give ourselves time, space, opportunity to fall into those patterns. You know, um, you could think through this with any form of addiction, right? Uh, an addict, maybe like it might not be the best place for someone that's an alcoholic to like go hang out at a bar. Like that—that's pretty common sense, you know. Uh, whatever your sin pattern is, let's make sure we're not indulging that with space and time and opportunity. Let's not tempt ourselves needlessly. And then we might need to submit to some accountability. This is the part where it says, you know, do this with other people. Uh, this is what Paul is practicing. He's calling out Timothy's church and, and asking Timothy to face some correction. This is Nathan and David. Uh, if we want to really address sin, if we really want to see sin removed from our lives, we're probably not going to do that very well in a vacuum. We're going to need some accountability and some context for that. So separate from sin. Our next point Verse 23 through 25, he says, stay out of fights. Uh, not talking about teenagers on the playground. Uh, he's talking about adults here. Um, stay out of fights. Have nothing to do, nothing to do, strong words, with foolish, ignorant controversies. Man, he sounds like he's insulting somebody just talking about the fights. Like they're foolish and they're ignorant, which kind of mean the same thing. They're foolish, ignorant controversies. And you know, you know this. They breed quarrels. We can look at our own fights. We can look at our own controversies on Twitter, in our lives, in our gossip, in our small groups, uh, in our friendships, in our family, and say some of these, if we pause, we know these are foolish, ignorant controversies, and you know they breed quarrels. If you know something breeds quarrels, stay away from it. Man, I hate that this verse is in the Bible, because I really like some of these quarrels, you know? Um, but it is here. It is here. And he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You know, there's no better picture of this than Christ before the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, this perfect sinless man with all the answers in the world continually being assaulted with trick questions by them. You know, there's so many times you open up to read about the life of Christ and it says, and the Pharisees came to him hoping to trick him, asking. And, and like that's the preface to the story. And what does he do? Uh, he responds with love. He responds with gentleness. He endures their evil. But he typically ignores the actual thing they're asking about. You know, they're asking about some dumb, ignorant, foolish controversy, and he completely sidesteps that, and he speaks to the actual heart issue at hand. This is, this is how we can do this. This is what Nathan is doing with David. He steps past the controversy of like, well, did Bathsheba like bring you, like lead you on? Or like, what? I know you're right, and you didn't always get along. He steps past all of that foolish, ignorant controversies and says, let's deal with the heart of the issue here. Uh, let's stay out of stupid fights. 
and focus on gentle correction of the actual issues. He says in verse 23, you're going to know when to disengage. This is really hard. This is really hard for me in particular. We're going to know when to disengage. When we face a conflict, um, even when there's real problems, this, this is talking about actual sin here. He's talking about like top level heresy. And he still says, we need to ask, is this going to be helpful or is this going to produce more fighting? Is this an ignorant controversy? Even like they're, they're, the basic heresy they're talking about here is like that the resurrection has already happened, which would imply that then we're not going to come back from the dead as well. That's, that is just completely blatantly wrong. He has to clarify that. But he says, let's stay out of the fights about that issue. Let's ask in any given discussion about that. You know, there were discussions in the church about like, well, what do you think? I don't know. The false teachers kind of have some stuff. Like, and Paul was really mean in the way he called out those guys last week. You know, there was controversy in how they were dealing with this, I'm sure. And he says, ask yourself, will this breed quarrels? Is this going to produce more fighting? If so, disengage. Uh, is this a gospel issue? Even if so, deal with this gently. And he reminds them in verse 24, kind of oddly, why does he put this in here? He calls Timothy and us the Lord's servant. Uh, like, that's a weird thing to put in the middle of this talking about fighting. He says, you know, and the Lord's servant. It's a reference to Timothy as uh, like a pastor like Paul, but it's also something he applies throughout his letters, throughout the New Testament to Christians in general. He says, we are servants, we are slaves of Christ. Uh, we are people who have been bought by Jesus, bought with a price. That is a slave. Obviously an abhorrent practice to practice on humans. But he says this is how we can understand ourselves as Christians. We have been bought with the price of Jesus' blood. And that's going to change the way we interact with everybody. I'm not out here for my own glory. I'm not arguing in this interaction. I shouldn't be worrying about my pride and my ego. Instead, I am someone else's. I'm representing Jesus. I am the Lord's servant. We are the Lord's servant. Let that inform our sense of justice. You know, sometimes we're more upset that our pride has been wounded than that the image of Christ has been wounded. And when, when doing that, when, our, when we're addressing our pride and not the image of Christ, we just do more damage to, to uh, the actual Lord whom we serve. He says that, and then he says in verse 24, be kind. If you're the Lord's servant, don't be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone. I'm reminded here of the, the t-shirts and the bumper stickers and all that that say be kind. I'm the kind of person that generally scoffs at those and is like, come on, no one can be that nice. Get out of here. You know, that's why you meet my wife, and she's actually that nice. But, uh, you know, that... <laughs> Like, the, he says, be kind, be kind. As much as we are to correct, we are to be kind. As much as we are to teach, we are to endure patiently. As much as they correct in verse 25, it should be with gentleness. We are to be kind. Uh, we're told to be known for our kindness and our gentleness as much or more than we're known for the correction. Um, the New Testament tells us repeatedly, you'll be known by, my disciples will be known by their love for one another. And if that doesn't define us, then that's something that also bears correcting. You know, if I have all the knowledge in the world, if I'm right on every point of doctrine, but have not love, then I'm just a clinging gong. I wish there was a gong on stage. I would go bang it. But he says, if I have it all right, and I'm a jerk, 
then it doesn't matter. It doesn't count. We've got to be kind. We've got to be gentle. Um, that word gentleness, we have a really hard time picturing gentleness and strength. Um, picturing Christ is obviously the, the ultimate picture there. You know, he is always gentle, and yet he is never without strength. Uh, he, he submits to the will of others. He dies on the cross, and yet he's the, you know, the son of God. Um, gentleness, this is in, in one of the challenges is that we tend to emphasize either justice and strength and setting wrongs right again, or mercy and grace and forgiveness. And, and God doesn't find a balance between those two. God doesn't say, let me be a little bit strong and a little bit gracious. He's fully gracious and he's fully strong. He is fully just and fully merciful. This is, this is a God who doesn't find a slider on a scale between these two extremes. He fulfills them both perfectly. And we can't do that. <laughs> There's our fundamental problem. When we encounter controversy and sin in the church or as a church, when we encounter that in the life of David, when we encounter that in our own um, broken relationships with friends and disagreements over politics and money and race and everything else we could imagine, we cannot perfectly be just and merciful. God can. And so where, where does that leave us? It means that when we disagree between friends over how to, how to settle something, uh, we need to err on the side of gentleness. But there's correction, but it has to be done gently. Um, and we need to be really gracious, with, especially with brothers and sisters who might disagree in good faith over different issues. You know, again, the New Testament, totally full of examples of this Food sacrifice to idols, big problem in the ancient church. You know, like if they were going to go buy a, a steak, go buy an ugly steak. They didn't know if it had been um, sacrificed to, uh, you know, some crazy false god. And so some people were thinking, well, I can't eat this because it's like actually food that has already been used in a, like another religion. And that would be bad. And some people are saying, well, that's not really bad because Jesus is king of all things. And those religions are kind of fake anyway. So why do I care about that? And then they were showing up at people's homes who weren't believers. And they were saying, like, will you eat the steak or not? Like they were asking them these questions. It was a whole controversy. And uh, the New Testament speaks to this, that issue in particular multiple times saying, like, do what your conscience says. Like, go, go with how the Lord convicts you and don't tell your brother what he should feel about it. Uh, that's, that's the challenge for us is that there's a lot of issues that in good faith, our consciences are going to hit in different spots uh, because we're not God. And the challenge is to understand that, to realize where those issues are. Correct, on, if it's a gospel issue, yeah, we need to correct and we need to do it gently. But if it's not, let, let other people's consciences lay in a different spot and, and operate with grace towards each other. That's really hard because I really like foolish, ignorant controversies. <sighs> but we can't do that. So uh, there's a, a clear application for us there, right? Stay out of these fights and when, we, when they pop up, continue to stay away. Operate with gentleness and love uh, operate with kindness. Let's be known for that. And then he tells us, third point, to pray for repentance. Uh, second part of verse 25. Uh, pray for repentance. He says, you know, be ready because these people that you, that you correct, if you correct them with gentleness, they might actually listen. This is the scary part. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance. 
leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You know, repentance, that's a churchy word. That means uh, here it's escaping from the bondage of the devil, escaping from the bondage of sin. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. Uh, repentance is not just saying, I'll quit. Repentance is a, a full acknowledgement of sin. It's a weight of the, the pain and the guilt of the sin. And then it's a turning from sin. The turning is very important. We can feel really bad about our sin and continue on. That is not repentance. Uh, we often, I think, feel really bad, convicted about sin. And then we don't do anything. That's not repentance. Uh, David repents. He gives us a picture imperfectly, uh, very imperfectly. Read the rest of 2 Samuel. It's a tragedy. Um, but he repents. He, he, he feels sadness and he turns from sin. Uh, Scripture is full of this. I like uh, one picture, if you'll bear with me, from a movie or a book or a play, whichever you prefer to see it in. Les Mis, if you've ever uh, read or listened to or watched any of the versions of Les Mis. Uh, you might remember the character Jean Valjean. Uh, he is set at one point in the movie or book or whatever. He's set free from prison and he's traveling and he's poor and he has no money and he's unable to uh, kind of start a new life. He wants to start this new life, but he's just completely burdened by debt. He stays with this old priest um, and he stays with the priest and in the middle of the night, he wakes up and he says, you know, I'm going to get some money, this will help my new life. And he steals all of the like silver spoons, all these vessels set apart for holy use. He steals all of the silverware, which was worth quite a lot of money, um, from this priest. And he takes off into the countryside with a bag full of stolen silver. The next day, the priest wakes up and he sees that all the stuff has been gone. Meanwhile, the, the French police uh, capture Jean Valjean, this peasant, this dirty man, carrying a bag full of uh, silver. And they bring him back to the priest. And he stands before the priest, and he's standing there with his bag full of his sins. Uh, a picture of his own guilt and his burden and the weight uh, the, of sin and shame upon him. And the police are like, okay, Father, what do we want to do with this guy? You know, like, really lay down the law for him. And, man, it's a beautiful scene if you've seen it. The, 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 the priest takes the silver candlesticks and says, Jean Valjean, you forgot these. And they're like, what? He says, I gave him these. I give you these now. Like, go and sin no more. Go and start a new life. And this man's life, it's the story, the basis for the rest of the, the story, is transformed. He, he goes from sinning, he goes from this life of poverty into a new life. And that breeds this whole beautiful story and family. Uh, he takes this, this gracious act from the father, from the priest, and he, that catapults him into this new life. Uh, and he's bought, brought back from the bondage, in his case, of sin, but also just extreme poverty and given a new life. And the priest, you know, in the, the song that I'm remembering, he says, I've saved your soul for God. Uh, he's brought back from the bondage of poverty. What a picture of repentance and grace and being released from bondage and poverty. Uh, and this passage tells us that we and our opponents even are not just faceless bad guys. They are 
dear, dear uh, people, humans bearing the image of God who have been bound in their sin, bound in their shame, bound by snares of the devil. You know, we got to pause there. This is why I like preaching through a whole book, because you got to talk about it. Satan comes up in this passage, right? The devil, not just a man with pointy hat, uh, a little pitchfork. There, in Alabama, there used to be, on the interstate, uh, a sign on the billboard that said, like, the devil will get you, go to church on Sunday, with like a little, like an actual picture of a little red, like, devil on the side of the interstate. It was awful. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, we don't know what the devil looks like. Uh, I'm tempted to think without form, but... Um, you know, Satan represents, uh, Satan's are uh, not, not this powerful thing. Satan is someone who schemes and lies and hides in the darkness. He wants to keep our sin there. Satan represents our rebellion from God. Um, he's ultimately powerless before God, right? He spends all of his time trying to get away from a confrontation with the Lord. And the Lord says, let me face you, because that's, that's revelation. Uh, I will win that battle. Uh, and what we see here is that the Lord said, you know, Paul, Paul tells us that these sinners are bound by schemes of the devil. They're bound. This is us in sin. We get so wrapped up in shame and guilt. And what do we say? And how do we get out of this? That we're bound in the snares of the devil. And, and our perspective can change mightily when we see our enemies, when we see these people we potentially need to correct as bound, not just like, uh, but not, not just on their own power. They are on their own power sinning, but also bound by the devil. In verse 26, he says, uh, these opponents who might come to repentance, they may come to their senses. Uh, I found out this week, the Greek word for coming to their senses normally gets used for sobering up. They might sober up. They might wake up the next day and have a big headache and uh, maybe talk, well, why are you guys talking so loud and be afraid of the lights? He says they might come to their, come to their senses. These uh, opponents, these people living in sin, David in this story, might sober up and, and realize the foolishness of their ways. Realize how they've gone astray uh, and escape the, the snare they've been in. And maybe important to note is the way he phrases this. God may, perhaps, maybe, grant repentance. You know, this is something that God's granting. And it might happen, might not happen. But either way, we have to be ready uh, when that happens. You know, Nathan has to be ready when David repents. Uh, when we are engaging in controversy with our friends, you know, think about the way we argue do we argue with people with an option even for them to come to our side? Or are we just arguing with them just to make them feel bad and have no possible room for them to actually come around to the way we see things? If we, if we engage in discussion, if we correct somebody without a vision for repentance, then like, what do we expect is going to happen? Of course, they're just going to get mad and get further entrenched in their views. He says, we have to be ready. Let's be praying for repentance because these people... God might grant repentance. They might actually turn away from their sin. This is the, the challenge of the church. Sometimes people actually repent, and then we have to be ready to offer them forgiveness. 
Uh, I'm sure we can all think back to examples in our lives where you've been frustrated with someone and and, and very surprising to you, in the middle of your frustration or talking with them, they crack and they're like, yes, I am wrong. I'm sorry. Maybe it's just me because I'm married to Gracie, but she'll say that. And I'm like, well, dang it. Now I can't be mad at you anymore. Like, what do I have to do here now? Now I have to forgive you. I'm not ready to do that yet. But I know I need to. He said, God may actually give them repentance. God may actually work in their hearts. And we need to be so known for our gentleness and kindness that we're ready for that. We should move to prayer for true repentance. We have to pray for this. I think most of the time I'm much more ready. I've given a lot more thought and time and energy to how to call people out than how to pray for repentance for them. Um, It would be a whole lot better use of time to pray, I think, for repentance than to work up our list of talking points. We, We should spend time in prayer for repentance. We should spend more time praying for it than arguing about it. Um, this is, this is, you know, that's Jesus. <laughs> I don't need to explain that to you. That's how Jesus works and operates. He lives and breathes at our, on our behalf at the right hand of God, interceding for us even now. Interceding for our sins and also interceding, praying that we might be broken free from bondage. You know, the beauty of that story about David, Samuel comes to, or Nathan comes to him and says, you are the man, is that he can turn that around, he should, we need to turn that around just as quickly and think about ourselves. That when we encounter opponents, we encounter false teaching, we encounter challenges, we need to also look at ourselves and say, you, I am the man. David was so ready to call out the sin of this guy in the hypothetical story, the, the guy who took the lamb, but he didn't realize his own blind spots. Uh, I am the man. You are the man. It's not just David. It's not just our opponents. It's not the people we're thinking about. It is ourselves that have sinned. It is ourselves we need to pray for, for repentance. Uh, we need to spend as much time in prayer for our own freedom from snares of the devil, for our own sobering up, for our own coming to our senses as we do for that of others. You are the man. You know, Paul, in this letter, in this passage, he's speaking to a hurting church, a church that is facing some really, like, specific heresy. There's no other word for it. And his concern is a little bit the heresy, but a lot more how they relate to each other. He spent like one verse in here telling us what the false teaching was. He spends the whole rest of the letter talking about how to relate as a church in the middle of this. And this is, this is part of the reasons why I think this letter is really helpful for us. Uh, because we've still got a couple weeks coming. Hopefully you don't get tired of it. But a couple weeks from, from Scripture of how do we relate to each other in the midst of hardship. And... Um, Yet, it's not the same situation. So, uh, I'll caveat this whole thing with, this is letters about a specific t- situation in Ephesus almost 2,000 years ago. Um, this whole thing, we need to all, this is how we read the Bible, we understand the context and then we need to pray for the Lord to give us relevance and application for our lives today. Because we are not living in the same exact situation. We do not have uh, these same challenges, thank goodness. But when we do face controversy and sin, we need to, can, hopefully, maybe, respond with gentleness, 
them with mercy, with forgiveness and grace, with actual correction, but with gentleness in the way that it's done. Um, we got to run from sin. We've got to correct gently. We've got to pray for repentance. The beauty of this story with Nathan and David is that it actually works. Uh, it actually works. David comes around. He repents. There are deep and painful consequences for his sin. And yet in the end, the Lord gives him grace. He doesn't kill him. He doesn't take his life. He doesn't even take his throne. And, and from that same throne, from David, uh, we get Christ. The hope is the same for each of us. As we look in the mirror and say to ourselves, you are the man, I am the man. As we see our own sin, our own areas where Scripture calls us out, that we can come to the Lord in repentance. He corrects us and He does it gently. He calls us into a new life, into a turning from sin. And there's consequences, there's challenges to sin. Sin is never without a scar. And yet, He gives us grace. He gives us a path forward. And that's, that's our life together as a church. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.